0: Well, good afternoon and good morning and good evening and welcome to listening to this. I know you're probably not listening to it on the road or on your... uh, (laughs) journey to work but we don't know what time of day it is man. we don't have any idea what time <laughs> of day it is for you folks you are listening to the drunken ux podcast and i am your host michael feenan
1: i'm your other other host COVID 19 i mean aaron hill uh
0: this week on the drunken ux podcast this is episode number 61 and we are talking about creating efficient emergency websites and we are going to be talking emergencies more in the sense of like something that could take your site down uh kind of situation sort of DRP disaster recovery type stuff
1: any kind of situation where you're suddenly going to have a surge of traffic right and a lot of people like the department of labor in New York state for example yeah every single <laughs> unemployment
0: site in the nation right now or yep the we've used the phrases before you know the slash dot effect or the hug of death yeah the the reddit hug of death Uh, let's see. But before we do that, I do want to encourage you to check us out on Twitter or Facebook. That is at slash drunken UX or on Instagram at slash drunken UX podcast. I got some fresh memeage getting ready to come to you on Instagram. Oh, my God. You're going to be head over heels, Aaron. Oh, I'm excited. I've worked real hard on curating this next batch. Also, if you want to chat with us, make sure to go by com slash Discord, and you can jump into our Discord channel with us. We have moved from Slack to Discord. If you use the old link from an old show, that will still work. It will just send you to Discord instead of Slack, so don't be confused <laughs> if, if you're expecting one over the other. What uh, what have you uh, got for your imbibement this evening? I,
1: I've got uh, some mezcal from Duestra Soledad. It is, oh, it's from Oaxaca. It is, um, it's good. It's like, um, well, if you drink it neat, it has, has a smoky, a smoky flavor. Yeah. It, it's a little bit, it, it tastes like if you can imagine scotch made from agave, which is, right. I guess, literally what it is. Um, but it's, it's really good. This Tonight I put a, uh, put a big rock on the glass and a half a, a quarter of a lime and that gave it a very different bit of flavor to it. Pretty good. Otherwise
0: straight, basically.
1: Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't Excellent. mix this. This is, um, like, I, I wouldn't mix this any sooner than I would mix Coke with scotch, you know what I mean? Right. yeah, okay, yeah. no,
0: that's fair. Yeah. How how long do they age that? It doesn't say how many years. Isn't, I mean, Mezcal in general, I think it's, is it three years? I don't, I genuinely don't know off the top of my head. I know, I think there is, like, a, a window that they do it, though.
1: Yeah, possibly. Yeah, but it's it's from Oaxaca, though. It's, like, it's legit stuff. What do you got?
0: I am drinking something very different for me, actually. It's a High West Distillery Burry,
1: Like a mixture of bourbon and rye?
0: Yeah, it's a bourbon-rye straight whiskey blend. Um, okay. It comes out of a distillery in Park City, Utah, so it's it's not necessarily easy to find. Hey, the bottle's beautiful. The bottle is sort of this very, very light blue and it's got that oh, show old show I don't know if you can really see it through the webcam but it's oh, got that sort of old okay. you see the bubbly yeah, yeah, glass yeah. it's got that sort of old style glass look to it like an old medicine mm-hmm. bottle kind of it's like a it's a very rough looking glass to yeah. to eyeball it this is strong shit it's bottled <laughs> at 46% which is not planetary you know setting records right. or anything but it is strong <laughs> it is quite sweet for a whiskey. Uh, mm-hmm. It's honey kind of on on the nose and palate. Uh, it hits with a little bit of like... Have you ever had like bourbon ice cream? Like a vanilla ice no. cream that's flavored with bourbon?
1: No, but I, I want to now. Yeah, it, it's got that
0: kind of like... You, you can really taste like this, this sort of ice creamy sort of vanilla flavor coming in, but mm-hmm. that that bourbon... Tone carries through it like very, very heavily and finishes a little bit spicy, Uh, not necessarily a a black pepper, but maybe like a white pepper Mm -hmm. kind of finish on it. But very strong like this. This is a whiskey that you take a sip of and it's like, hello, (laughs) it's it lets you know it's there. Um, But it's not like super burny. It doesn't give you that hot chest feeling that okay Um, especially a rye bourbon can can do for you or a rye whiskey can do for you it's flavorful it's something like this would be great with a giant porterhouse steak okay that is what this i i would love to sit here with a giant plate of grilled meat and
1: eat with this (laughs) ron ron swanson (laughs) thanks to my friend
0: rory he he brought this over last time he visited and it's I've, i've had it on my shelf and i've been delicate drinking it because I don't want to run out of it too fast. But uh, tonight I wanted something a little different. So (laughs) here we are. What more can I say?
1: I saw uh, this is sort of related to that. I recently saw this video on the Epicurious YouTube channel about how to make every classic cocktail. So like every cocktail from the late 1900s, early 20th century, you know, Tom Collins, Martini, uh, Manhattan, old fashioned, all those um it's like 40 something minutes long but it it was so cool i will have to send you a link to it it was really awesome i want to try all those drinks they
0: look delicious (laughs) that'll get us through about episode 242 so that's a good plan (laughs) i also want to give a shout out to uh, everybody over at smashing magazine and that should come as no shock because everything smashing magazine puts out is fantastic Uh, If they're not on your reading list, they should be already. And so you may have already heard about this. And this came up a a while back and I just didn't have time to fit it into a show until now. But back in March, they finally released the Ethical Design Handbook. This is the latest in uh, their series of smashing books. Uh, I think they've had four, if if my memory is right, uh, up until now. And this is one that Uh, Well, the way they describe it on on their book release post is they say, what happens when ad blockers cross-browser tracking protection and data regulation like GDPR and CCPA become a norm too? That's when an Hmm. honest ethical design could be a competitive advantage. Hmm. This is something that's super interesting to me because I work at a company where GDPR factors into everything we do. CCPA is factoring into everything we do. Um, We – we try to do right, you know, our cookie compliant, you know, we've got a cookie compliance banner and we've been very aware of not trying to build those things in a way meant to trick people into uh, confirming, you know, acceptance with us. Right. And so this rings really true to me as far as like what I, I find important as a developer and designer um so I'm I'm really excited about sitting down. I haven't started reading it yet, but I'm super stoked to get into
1: it. Yeah. I I had to consider that it might be a competitive advantage. That's interesting.
0: Well, you know, it's it's a trust thing, right? It's a this yeah. is where you go from UX to CX, customer right. experience, and the, you know that idea of building trust with your customers and giving them the right experience, not just with your application, but just as a human being kind of thing
1: people know when they're being snowed over like that and it's it's shitty i don't know like why why would you want your brand to be associated with a negative experience like that but, or like and, something annoying
0: and the easy one right is how many times do you go to sites and they're like hey we use cookies to do stuff and we just need to know if you will let us do it and your only option is to accept right like they they modal their site and it's like you can't dismiss it you can't you have to click accept or go away right and i go away there is no site that does that that i need that badly i will go to another site and find the information
1: you know what i hate is when they do it pop-up a modal and it's a call to action or some kind of like lead gen or something and it's like hey do you want to find out these 12 secrets of your privacy or whatever and then it's either like yes or no, I don't care about this, or or like, or no, I have all the answers already, or something, something that's like, like you know, it's the option you want to click on, but they try to make you feel shitty for clicking on it. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. If that's a specifically an ethical design issue, but like, you know, fuck you, man. God.
0: <laughs> it sucks because I know doing it right is hard. I know how much time we have spent on our tools and are still spending on making it so that users have you know full granular control over. Well, I'll accept your, you know, your uh, tracking cookies,
1: but I don't want your marketing cookies or something like that. Right. I still always go back to CGP Gray's mailing list. Um, he has uh, on every one of his emails from his mailing list, it, at the right at the top of the email, it says, and I'm quoting literally, big obvious unsubscribe link here. Boom, right at the top. <laughs> Never clicked it. I like I cuz I've never wanted to cuz I I like the emails that I get from because he sends quality email. Every other email that I get from anyone else it always has it like buried at the bottom or it's obscured or I'm going to throw a call back to something that
0: we we talked about briefly last episode I believe sure. that you know in, in, in giving somebody the option to decline something or to opt yeah. out of something is not going to entice them to make the negative action right like right. Giving, yeah. providing the option is not going to they're not going to see that and be like oh yeah I'm just not going to do that. It's <laughs> you know and like you say it's like with the emails. Uh mm-hmm. if you're getting the email and you like the email, you're not right. going to unsubscribe from it. The only time you're going to unsubscribe from it is when you don't want it anymore. And if you don't right. make that easy, you're going to draw the ire of certain users who may shame you publicly over it. <laughs> I don't know who that could be. I don't have any <laughs> idea who I could be referring to on that, but that's that's <laughs> the only time where that really is a problem is you're you're making it harder for the user to do what the user wants to do, regardless of what, how you want it to happen as a business.
1: It's like, OK, make a good product. People won't want to leave.
0: Yeah, it it reminds me. I think uh, if we do a throwback here to episode 41, Ron Bronson mm-hmm. was on with us and we talked about hostile design. Yes we got into some of this and it, it leads into that, right? The, the ethics of design yeah. and what it is right to do and things like that. So that's a good episode to go back and listen to. If you want to get some, a little bit of background on that, if you're interested in the book, we'll have a link in the show notes. You can go check it out. Um, this isn't a sponsored mention. We're not getting any kind of kickback whatsoever on, on plugging this. It's 19 bucks for the ebook. It's 39 bucks. If you want the ebook and the print version, Nice. Um, I've, I put my money where my mouth is. I bought it. I just haven't started reading it yet, but as soon as I get through it, you can bet you'll be hearing about it on a future episode of the Drunken UX Podcast.
1: Nice. I got to check that one out.
0: So this week, we want to take a little bit of time here, and by a little bit, I mean roughly exactly 34 minutes or so, uh, to talk about emergency sites. When I say an emergency site, I mean like a site that needs to be put up in a hurry that is designed to convey necessary information to an audience in high
1: demand. Here, Here's some scenarios. There's a school closing Every, or there's a big snowstorm. Everyone wants to know if schools closed, or there's an active shooting situation, active shooter situation on your campus and or business place, or um, there's an earthquake or a tornado or something similar, and uh, everyone wants to know, you know, where they get supplies or where to go for emergency. Uh, no, or not to go. Right. Yeah. Just any kind of situation where there's communication that has to happen, and people know to go to your place for information, so everyone's going to go there all at once. I'll throw an even stupider one in there, and that's Mm. hardware failure.
0: Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, and the thing is, and like you and I, I think, have probably lived through a version of all of these at some point. Uh, I was heavily involved uh, right after the tornado hit Joplin.
1: Okay. Missouri, right?
0: Yeah, Joplin, Missouri. Yeah. Uh, that was uh, 2011, I believe. Yes. Uh, I had, I I had just had a knee surgery, and I was stuck in my recliner. And I I used to be a firefighter years and years ago, and I've kind of got this – still got that mentality of when something bad happens, my instinct is to jump up and go, you know, do something. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't then. I was stuck in my chair, so what I ended up doing was helping coordinate a lot of online resources and and – you know, relaying information to people. Keep in mind, this was nine years ago. We didn't have a lot of the tools that we have now. Yeah, It impacted cellular availability because towers were damaged and people were heavily using their phones and, and overloading
1: them. Landlines were knocked out. You had power outages everywhere. You know what? The um, Do you remember Parks and Rec, the show? Yes, yeah. So my, my daughter and I have been watching that recently and we just got the, we watched the episode where they have the uh emergency response thing the day of her gala or something for some park the the simulation it's a simulation of the city's like management for dealing with an emergency and they they talk about like oh well, you can't use your cell phones right now because everyone's using them, and it's like overloading the cell phone towers so like that that sort of thing like it's there's gonna emergency situations are gonna create uh all kinds of things you might not be expecting,
0: yeah from an emergency standpoint i remember when the virginia tech shooting happened mm-hmm. um, and i believe at high ed web one year they even did a presentation on the impact that had on their website uh, like immediately after and in the days yeah. that followed because they were getting a ton of traffic not related to students and school and education but just right. you know it's it's the digital rubber neck yeah mentality like people are going there they want to know what's going on or, or whatever and all of that traffic the The whole kind of underpinning of all this is, if your infrastructure cannot handle getting information out, what can you do to make sure that you can still get out that critical need to know information in a yeah. timely manner? This isn't full DRP. Um, DRP is disaster right. recovery plans. We're not going to talk about you know colocation and offsite backups and things like like you know the super high end. This right. is more about just how how do you keep the lights on for a website and it's it's pretty easy in a, in relative terms it just takes somebody taking the time to sit down and make sure though that those you know life jackets are stowed on the boat so to speak right <laughs> metaphor for those of you <laughs> So I want to reference first and foremost. I I have to give a a shout out, and I'm gonna apologize in advance because you know it's coming. <laughs> it's a name that I'm having trouble with, and Aaron has tried to educate me on this. Uh, Max book
1: book. That's that's pretty close, I believe. Yeah, it's it's, it's a, a
0: an umlaut. Of, yeah,
1: oh with the umlaut. Dk. Okay.
0: Um, I I'm Kansas. We had a great laugh at me earlier today because I had to read some French text at work, and. <laughs> There is no time I sound like I am more from Kansas than listening to me try to read French, because I don't speak French at all. Je
1: suis le fromage.
0: (laughs) That's that's the only thing I know, and I'm pretty sure it means I am a little girl. (laughs) It's from a, one of those commercials where it's like the speak and say language right. tapes that you used to be able to buy. And the girl points to herself with a big thumb. She's like, this should be. This should be. Uh, there's a little trivia about me. So this is over at his blog, uh, mxb.dev. Of course, we'll have a link in the show notes. But he wrote a a blog post about a tool he's developed called the Emergency Website Kit. And it's it's mated the rounds in a few places. It's a very cool tool that he's built, and we'll talk about it specifically here in a few. Um, but
1: yeah, this is pretty cool.
0: It, it was inspired, or I don't know what the tool was, but his post was inspired by a comment from Nicholas Zakis um, on Twitter that said, "Just received a shelter in place emergency alert with a web address for more information. Click the link. The site is down. All emergency <laughs> sites should be static." and it rings true right now, right? Because we are trying to push out a lot of emergency information to people, be it, what are the shelter in place orders? What are the business rules uh, right now for people? What mm-hmm. do you do if you've been laid off from your job? And that's a big one, right? Yeah. The, and we joked about it, but emergency sites are, are not, I'm sorry. Unemployment sites across the nation oh, yeah. are crippled right now because right. they can't keep up with demand. And it's, taking down not just the application side of many of those sites, but also the front end where the FAQs are or phone numbers are. Uh, And that's a good example of why these things are important.
1: So to clarify, when we say static site, we mean like taking an HTML document from the file server or file, a file system, and then like punting it out to the request. So you request a page, they grab the HTML document fully formed and then, Swoop it off to you. No pre-processing. So like if it goes through PHP, if there's any PHP in it, for example, that's going through a pre-processor, which is going to require more memory, more resources. And then as you scale up your requests, like that's going to put a bigger load on the server. If you have a fr- framework like .NET, Rails, et cetera, or, Word- or even WordPress, like every request is going to be a huge,
0: huge chunk on each of those. Right. And that's what I was going to say is WordPress being the classic example. Most mm-hmm. folks are familiar with it. Yes, you can run caching on WordPress, that will help things, but generally speaking, WordPress works by rendering every page on the fly. And this gets into where if we segue into talking about capacity, server capacity. Mm -hmm. The reason the site goes down is because it has limited resources. It only has so much CPU and so much memory. And the more people hitting a server, the more of that is in use. And when it gets to its limit, it can no longer effectively get pages out in a timely manner, and you get server errors. Those may be 500 errors. Those may be uh, just a straight-up you know, server down error. 503 service unavailable, yeah. The, uh, in, in WordPress, a session, and this can be highly variable because it depends on your theme, it depends on your plugins, it depends on a lot of stuff. But WordPress on average uses about 15 to 40 megabytes of RAM Jeez. per session. Because of the PHP thread and right. the overhead that WordPress is running to make the database calls. and you have,
1: to make it, you have to create an in-memory object for the database handler. Right, and that's
0: something else. And when we talk about this is you know the, your HTTP server has to use memory, your PHP thread is using memory, your database is using memory, and each one of those has limits. There are bottlenecks. Mm-hmm. The, as a result, estimating your server capacity is incredibly hard. Yeah. And it's there isn't a real simple equation uh, to use to be like, well, this is how much RAM and CPU I have, how many sites or how many people can I serve every minute? Well, it's it depends. It depends on a lot of stuff. There is, for what it's worth, sort of an abstract equation. Um, on, and again, it will be linked in the show notes. It's from Servebolt, And the way they describe it, if you take the number of cpu cores divided by the average page response time in seconds which is something you can get from your uh, uh, ins- uh chrome inspector tools or whatever times 60 for 60 seconds mm-hmm. times user click frequency which you can get from google analytics that gives you the maximum simultaneous users huh in the sense of you know considering a a person on your site, not just how many pages you can spit out, mm-hmm. but how many individual people can use your website over the course of a session at once.
1: When you have your website and you have your content being served up through WordPress or some sort of framework, we, we lean on these frameworks because it makes adding new things that require user interaction a lot more easy. But in these emergency situations, all all people need is one-way communication. They just need to know know, what's going on, what's the latest status of this thing, what do I do, how can I be safe, et cetera, Uh, who can I contact if I have a problem, that sort of thing. It's just, they just want an answer. And you can give them all those answers statically, so without using any of the framework or anything else. Um, And so you don't have to use all this extra bloat that you might have with a framework when you all you need is just to be able to serve up that content. Yeah. Uh, for what it's worth,
0: if you really want to know what it takes to take your server down, try to take your server down. <laughs> there are tools to help with that, and my personal favorite is a tool called Siege. It's a command line tool, so you do have to get a little familiar with if you, if you aren't good at using the command line, you will want to, but there'll be a link to that. There's also Apache JMeter or Apache Bench, Any one of those, you can download, their free tools. You set up the pages that you want to hit. You can give it, you know, just your homepage or you can give it a list of pages. How many clients you want to generate, how many visits per second you want to generate. And basically you just start turning up the dial. And like when you finish with Siege, it gives you a report of how many connections were dropped and how many pages were dropped. And you just start slowly, you know, you start with 10 users requesting a page a second. And it comes back and it says, we had 100% hit rate. So dial it up, turn that knob up to 2, turn it up to 5, and start seeing where things start falling apart. That That's the best way, really, to figure out where your server will mm-hmm. fail because how much RAM, how much CPU usage and stuff you have is great, but you may have other services running on those boxes. If your database server is on a different box from your production server, like all mm-hmm. of this kind of stuff will affect how much load you can take right. so a, a tool like that lets you i mean it's what you're basically doing with siege is running a dds uh denial of service attack um <laughs> a dos uh, sorry attack
1: I, before you before you do that to your server you may want to let your like if you're hosting through DigitalOcean or someone maybe you should let them know first <laughs> it's yeah it is
0: generally a good rule of thumb that unless it's like hardware you own yeah uh definitely alert. Like and WordPress engine, I know. Um, you definitely want to let them know you're doing that. They will let you do it. They have no problem letting you do yeah. it. But if you don't tell them in advance, they assume it's an attack and they will block whatever is coming in. So, right, that is uh, yeah something definitely to keep in mind. But any of those tools will at least those will actually give you the performance of your server then. Um, uh, mm. and do it when it's not live. Ideally, <laughs> <laughs> that's the other piece of advice. But once you know that, you'll have kind of this thumbprint, uh, this fingerprint of
1: how good are you. That's why it's important to know that. I'm going to throw back to episode twenty two when we discussed um, healthcare.gov. That wasn't an emergency situation, but they definitely didn't consider uh, the load that the site would have to be able to take. Yeah,
0: well, even the IRS site with the Get My Payment tool the other yes. day yeah. when it first launched and. Right. At least now it looks like they have provisioned it, so it will stay up. Yeah, to say the least. Um, the next part of this is then gets into DNS. I'm not going to go real deep into this, but I want to mention a couple things because DNS may or may not be in your control as a designer, as a developer. But maybe you're an army of one at a company, so this is mm-hmm. all something you handle. It it just depends. But DNS gets into the sort of DevOps realm of being able to make sure the traffic is going to the right place. Yeah. So normally you have a DNS record. That DNS record says my is at IP one twenty seven zero zero one. That's your A record. And if that site goes down, normally people keep going to this dead site. They they type in your address, they're told where to go and they go there and it's another hit on a server that's all your you know yeah. It's, you know, stop kicking him, he's already dead, that <laughs> kind of thing. So there's a couple things you can do here. One is, and probably the best idea, is to use a load balancer. Mm-hmm. I can't give you great advice on this because every load balancer is a little bit different. But w- what Why don't we
1: Why de- describe what a load balancer does first?
0: Yeah, yeah, sure. A load balancer is basically the only thing it does. It's a simple tool that just says... Hey, you want access to this stuff? Here's where I'm gonna send you. And so, when you have a big site like, let's say it's Amazon, right? Mm-hmm. Amazon isn't running their website on one old white box Dell stuffed in somebody's closet. Wait, they're not? No, I guarantee you that that is not the way they do it. Uh, it's they an were HP, HP computers. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right <laughs> on the same page with you. Um, they, you know, it's across thousands of servers. Right. What the load balancer does is it's like a queue manager almost, right? It's a, like you go to the airport, and they've got four security lanes.
1: I was going to say, I gonna say uh, Trader Joe's. Have you ever been there? I have never been there. The, the the checkout line is one long line, and then there's a person standing at the head of the line, and then as each register becomes open, they direct you to that register. Bank teller? Yeah. Bank teller, and I was, I was Oh, yeah, that's TSA. a great idea. You're
0: going through security at the airport, you go up to the single guy who's like checking Mm -hmm. your deal, but then they're like, okay, go down to line eight or whatever. Right. That's what a load balancer does. It's trying to distribute traffic amongst a bunch of servers, usually keep load down. Now, that's a first line of defense. If you need to handle a lot of traffic, scale yourself horizontally, have your site on three servers, then you can handle triple the weight.
1: That's not feasible for most folks, and it's not necessary for a lot of folks, though. With AWS, I, I had to, I had a class on uh, a short seminar class on this. Um, setting up a load balancer in AWS is I, I'm not going to say it's simple, but they make it as painless as as possible. Yeah. I think ELBs um, they're very yeah. basic
0: though; they don't have a lot of functionality.
1: Right, but you just you basically take your EC2 instance and then you say, okay, uh, you know, prop up two of these, stick a load balancer in between them, and then it splits the traffic. Right.
0: What you really want to look at, though, is you know how your pools are configured. Are you balancing or are you mm-hmm. setting up failover? And this is where right. a load balancer becomes very valuable. Normally, if you're running a load balancer and you're balancing between two servers and server one goes down,
1: mm-hmm.
0: the load balancer is constantly checking the health of that server, and it goes, Oh, no, server one went down. We'll start sending people to server two. Right. That's where people like me get really nervous and say, God, I hope I have enough resources on server two to take that load. Mm -hmm. Um, But the other thing it can do is you could have a third server that's the backup that never gets traffic to it at any other time. Right. But you could say if server one fails, then start sending traffic to server three
1: instead. I've never actually tried this, so I don't know if this would work. But when you have multiple like when you have your DNS records that say like, okay, use this IP address, and if this one fails, use this one and so on. Couldn't you have like your, you know, the main site be the first one and then your very simple emergency site be the the failover? Right, yeah,
0: and that's exactly the point with if you set up your load balancer to have that failover, ideally what happens is, because here's the thing, right? If if you manage your DNS manually and a site goes down, You have to go into your DNS zone file and change that record to point to a new IP address, which is all well and good unless you have like a 24-hour TTL, time-to-live setting set. But if if you've got that high setting, though, if your DNS record is set to 24 hours and you change that IP address, you have no guarantee that people are going to get your emergency site for the next day in some cases. Usually it is definitely faster than that, but you have no guarantee of that. On a load balancer, that's not true. As long as that load balancer is up, it is still a load balancer is still a single point of failure. That's yeah. granted. But you say here's here's you know the pool for our production sites. Here's the right. pool for our emergency site. If production goes down, your only job is to then say, okay, now we're sending all the traffic to this
1: new IP, and right. nobody has to wait on anything. I I think there's there's a softer solution. We had when I when I worked at uh, Indiana University many many years ago, we put a little snippet in the top of our like main template, and if there was ever any kind of emergency from central IU like central communication, it would be embedded into that thing dynamically when the page was loaded. the The advantage here is that this is a really simple thing to add, and it gives people immediate information that's clearly visible when they first load the page up so they don't have to look anywhere um the downside is that it doesn't like you're still having to load up everything and if you get a massive deluge of traffic coming in like you're going to get taken down still um but this at least prevents people having to click around the site
0: so the other uh thing you can do on DNS that uh can make this a little simpler if load balancers aren't your cup of tea or you just don't have the ability or the money or the wherewithal there are services that can do like dynamic DNS monitoring for you that they usually Hmm. cost a few bucks or so. One that comes to mind that I know of, I haven't used it so I can't really speak to like from, from an experience standpoint, but I know DNS made easy does this. You obviously have to let them manage your DNS, but then you give them your primary IP address and then like your failover IP address. And so if they, they work just like a load balancer in that sense and that, if they detect your main IP go down, they will start routing people to your backup IP address. Then you don't have to concern yourself with it or, or worry about that at all. It'll just be there, basically. I'll throw a link to it. They've got a little article that explains how their stuff works. Um, something to keep in mind, if you want to run a separate emergency mm. site, you have
1: to be concerned about DNS. This is perhaps a little, little in the weeds and requires some uh, knowledge of Server maintenance, but another thing you could do is have a separate, separate document route for a low bandwidth site on your server, and then if you know you're going to be hitting a spike or you're in an emergency situation or something like that, um, go into your web server, Apache, Nginx, whatever, and then tell it to inst- like tell it to point to the alternate, restart the server, and then it should just work. Right. That I mean, that's I'm not going to say that's simple. It's a relatively small thing to do if you're familiar with doing it. (laughs) Yeah. And it depends on what your emergency strategy
0: is too. Like how you plan to update that, how, you know, information will get out through it and how you're tooled, how your CMS works. All of this has to factor in. Um, Use one thing. If you've got an emergency site, you can also use a CDN in front of it. Mm -hmm. This helps in a couple ways. Um, one, you're relying on people who spend way more inf- uh, money on delivery infrastructure than what you mm-hmm. do. You're not going to spend more than CloudFront or DigitalOcean or, or uh, Cloudflare or any of these folks. So by relying on their infrastructure to deliver pages, even if it's your normal site, yeah, you're offloading a ton of server load to the CDN. Yeah, they don't ever have to hit your server to get your page. The right. CDN will cache it and deliver it from there. And so you still they still get the information, but you've now enabled yourself to make sure your server stays up. The caveat being, if you use one of these services, especially CloudFront, CloudFront's an AWS service, it's metered. So it charges you based on how much you use. If you are experiencing an extremely high spike in traffic due to an event, you want to make sure you're keeping your bandwidth usage low, so you aren't also slapped with a giant bill to go along with all the headache of having a site down. That's just something to consider. Some services like DigitalOcean, you're playing a fat, you're you're playing a flat, you're paying a flat fee for access to their CDN up to, I forget what it is, I think a terabyte or something of delivery. Mm. So. Odds are, <laughs> okay. especially if you've got a low bandwidth site, you're not going to hit their limit God, most no likely. Uh, that's a ton of traffic at that point. <laughs> so let's let's talk about emergency sites and, and a couple tools yeah. that are out there. There's one that is newer, um, and I don't know if it came out as an exact response to COVID-19, but I know that's where it's getting pushed real heavily. That's servicerelief.us. It's a site that's designed to use Airtables and Netlify to push out a very simple static site that has all its content editing basically in a spreadsheet for people. So putting information into it is easy. And it generates a super light, very tiny site that runs through Netlify's uh, uh, system. Then it's simple. It's not going to meet mm-hmm. everybody's needs, but it's a good place to start if this is something you're interested in and want to get a feel for what these things can look like. Yeah. It's it's a very straightforward system. The folks who are using it, you'll see, you know, they're putting out lists of things like which restaurants are open or where can you go to support them. Are there events or resources available to the community to assist with things, you know, food banks mm-hmm. where they can pick up stuff? um, you know, meals on wheels type services and things like that. The other one is the one that uh Max set up and talked about in his article, which is the emergency site kit. He's got this on GitHub and there is a demo site. It's emergency-site dot dev if you want to go look at what it looks like in production. Um you can fork his repo and start changing stuff from there. It's he's got a lot of information about how it's set up. It also uses uh, Netlify as huh. uh, its default distribution system. You can, in theory, connect it to any kind of front end or back end rather that you want. The output is really impressive, though. So you he's using uh, Eleventy. It's a static site generator. When you update your content in Netlify, Eleventy runs, generates the static content, and then pushes it into the file server. The main page for that emergency dev site is only 3.3 kilobytes. It's Amazing. It's super tiny. It takes five requests, although only one of those is necessary. The other ones are like a couple fave icons and something else. Mm. The page itself loads in 1.47 seconds, and the HTML document takes a whopping 7 milliseconds to download. <laughs> Uh, 7 milliseconds to download that that main HTML document. And he's also done something very cool that y- you know he didn't have to do but makes a lot of sense for people who need access to the, this information. He's included service workers. This is something we haven't really talked about on the show at all. Um, and it's a new uh, browser API tool that you can take advantage of to do work in the background on sites. And hmm. he's using an offline service worker. So once you visit the page... Oh, it's using a service worker to cache your website in the local storage and serve it so that if for some reason something happened to even take the emergency site down, you still could access the information that you had access to before. That's cool. So yeah, it acts kind of like a cached web server locally. So wild. Wow. Three, three kilobytes
1: though. That's super tiny. Yeah. Yeah. Just as a, a quick PSA. Um, three and a half kilobytes means you're probably not loading any images. Absolutely. Unless images are absolutely necessary for your part of your emergency response. For example, showing a map of this is where to go in the case of this thing or whatever. Um don't don't put images. You don't need your branding. You don't need anything. Just use big fat text that people can read easily and keep it clean. Yeah. Well, and, I mean, that's a good point to just talk
0: about how how we should structure these kinds of things. So, like, when I was building mine, I tried to stick. What, what are the essentials? If we have an emergency, what's the most important stuff people need access to? So, A, the simpler you keep this thing, the more accessible it's going to be and the easier it's going to be for people to get what they need. Mm-hmm. And if you're in a situation where you know, cellular bandwidth is low or lines are out and, you know, you don't have time to download a site that may come in at 10 megabytes for all of the background videos and images and CSS and JavaScript and ads. That's a, it may not, it's not going to look pretty, but pretty is not the goal. Information is the goal. I would stick to news. I would stick to news that's going on. Like what is pertinent right now? Um, if it's uh, like an active shooter type situation, what are the emergency phone lines to check on loved ones or to submit tips? Um, What locations are safe or not safe? You know, that kind of news is going to be immediately important to everybody and should be the stuff at the top of that page.
1: right? Think about if you had an actual emergency situation, you have an active shooter on campus or there's literally a fire. Literally nothing matters other than telling people, don't go to this place. It's dangerous and you might die. <laughs>
0: yeah. Social links, I think, in this day and age are top of the list important. Oh, definitely. Have a, have a link yeah. to your Twitter, have a link to your Facebook, have a link to your YouTube. Three most important ones. Oh, yeah. You're you can't they're beat that. guaranteed to be up. Yeah. And everybody will be able to access the information there because odds are your accounts aren't private. So, right. and if they are, they definitely shouldn't be during a
1: crisis. In an emergency situation, Twitter is perfect for that because you know they're like they have so much redundancy on their servers and it's built for doing like status updates and you can just you know put a link to the twitter account and then let twitter handle the rest of the requests yeah people just keep refreshing the twitter page rather than refreshing your page
0: that yeah exactly the f5 effect right the reality is you're only making that problem worse when you're Mm -hmm. encouraging people to sit there and refresh a page over and over um right. it's, you know the the pressure is not ever being let off contact information kind of goes along you know i mentioned you know emer- what are the emergency phone numbers or email addresses or whatever and in some cases you may also want to have a link to your real site the thing about an emergency site is you know your server may not be down but you may mm-hmm. be you know using it like a prophylactic to prevent it from going down Right. You've got all of this traffic coming to your site that isn't interested in your products or your marketing campaign or, or signing
1: up for your newsletter.
0: They're coming there because
1: something bad happened, or or it's like that uh, that example we talked about earlier with the little embed on your homepage. If if your sudden uptick in traffic is because people just need an answer about something that everybody's going to have the same question about, really easy to satisfy that need without getting into everything else.
0: Yeah. And so like for, let's say students have the link in there that says, you know, access the student portal or or whatever Mm -hmm. your, your top links are or something like that. And then that will go to the real site and you're filtering basically a lot of that, you know, a lot of that traffic then so that the load on your main site can drop down and you're serving the super lightweight page.
1: Flattening the curve, if you will. Flattening the curve.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So, and strategically. Te- you know technically strategically and Aaron you you hit on this already but m- to make this really effective minimizing your external dependencies is like priority number 1 so yeah images are no-no in my book the a lot of these tools um like the static site generators 11 that uh that the emergency site kit uses Jekyll Gatsby they can take all your css all your javascript and inline it into that page so it's not a separate file it's just included in the markup that means you've reduced a request for each one of those files one request now is handling everything mm-hmm. by not using images you know that 100 kilobyte screenshot has you know that's increased the the size of your your site by 33 fold if your site's only 3 kilobytes yeah Use or, and here's a backup answer to that too. If you have to have an image like that, use another third-party service like Imager or something. Yeah. And throw, oh, throw, yeah. The, throw yeah. the images up there so that even if it has to be a separate request, it's not a request coming from your infrastructure.
1: It, this is like a really obvious thing, but like think about it because every additional request that's coming from your server is essentially separate. So if you request a document and the document has six image references in it, that's six more requests you're hitting your server. That's seven total. Yeah. And so if you have a thousand times the number of users you normally get, that's 7,000 extra requests that are coming through. Yep. So yeah, I- imagers is a great idea.
0: And SVGs then, like you mentioned, you know, they factor in well because SVGs are incredibly tiny. Mm-hmm. They can be inlined into your CSS. Yep. Um, or they can be inlined into your HTML because they're just code. And, they let you design and I was actually really proud of the site that I had built at Pitt State because of that. Like it's it wasn't it certainly was not the most beautiful thing in the world because it was using system fonts and things like that, but mm-hmm. it wasn't ugly. You can yeah. still do some layout with it. You can still put a little extra HTML in there to make it look nice and have it not just be a wall of text or something. And I'm I'm just spitballing yeah 50 kilobytes would probably be where i would stop and say think about what you're putting on that page
1: (laughs) oh yeah yeah definitely i I think that's a a ceiling in an emergency situation you absolutely do not need 50 kilobytes of data yeah Like, like at that point you should be directing them to a different source and just giving them the tldr right up front yeah let's
0: talk quickly about static site generators because they factor in heavily to the emergency site kit. Um, yeah. Talking about the way, so the emergency site kit uses Netlify. Right. The Service servicerelief.us site uses Netlify. You don't have to use Netlify as your backend. You could use WordPress as your backend. If you're comfortable sure. with WordPress as an editing platform, you could use that and then tie in a static site generator that would make it so that you don't have to use WordPress to serve the pages. Right. I won't get into that. I'll I'll find you a good uh, tutorial, though, on Gatsby and WordPress and throw it in the show notes. But there is nothing that can beat static HTML from a performance standpoint. No. When you don't have databases involved, when you don't have JavaScript involved, when you don't have Node involved or any back-end application stuff involved, just sending a browser a flat HTML page that has to do no other work.
1: All of the rendering is done on the client side. So... Yeah. Um, I, I would say uh, in a pinch, if you um, before you resolve the rest of these issues, you know, if you do have a sudden bandwidth spike, contact whoever your service provider is for your, your hosting provider. I mean, see if you can get them to temporarily bump your RAM up just for like the short term. so They can handle the spike better. That's going to yeah. be probably your biggest. but Like just get in touch with them and let them know. We're having this problem right now. Like, can you please help us, you know, bill us later? But we only need it for this period. Never hurts to ask. And if you're using a managed host, especially,
0: a lot of managed, like the White Glove services, they will have no problem doing that. Yeah. Uh, That is why you are paying them. And that's, I think, an important emphasis
1: to asterisk to to spit on that.
0: Spit? Why did I
1: say spit? (laughs) But throwing RAM at the problem can absolutely, like... Like, you could still run into problems with it, and you need to come up with a better solution. But in the meantime, though, it'll make it a little more accessible. Yeah. If you're yeah. on shared hosting, obviously, different situation. But <laughs> Yeah.
0: So Eleventy is the static site generator that uh, Emergency Site Kit uses. The two that uh, that I'm more familiar with and you probably have heard are mm-hmm. Jekyll and Gatsby.
1: Yeah. Uh, was it episode 22? 31. Episode 31. That was with uh, Dustin Shaw, who works at Jesus, Gatsby. Jesus,
0: you are better at this uh, remembering these things than I will <laughs> I, ever be.
1: It's not from memory. I, I bring up the page and search for it. Okay.
0: <laughs> but yeah, Gatsby is something that you're probably familiar with, at least the name. I'm sure mm. most folks have probably heard that name thrown around at some point. But these tools, regardless of if you're using a framework like the Emergency Site Kit or if you're rolling your own, those can be incredibly useful for generating those sites and then pushing them whether push them to S3 and then put cloudfront in front of it push them yeah. if nothing else github has their pages tool github pages yeah and you can serve a website from github pages all you need is to have it run the the generation script there are limitations to that but i think for a lot of people especially for an emergency site you're probably safe on it they have what they say is a a soft bandwidth limit of a hundred gigabytes per month. Uh, and while I keep talking, Aaron, divide that out. What is how I, many, I just did? <laughs> how many page views is that at three point three kilobytes of age? Thirty thirty million in change. So yeah, yeah. I, you're probably okay, um, and that's per month. And if you can do, if you
1: have more than thirty million visitors, um, you probably can afford to do something bigger than yeah, get yeah, up pages. Oh, yeah, that's <laughs> all.
0: The the other thing is uh you can have ten builds an hour, so if you imagine that would be like having an update every six minutes.
1: Point point to Twitter if you're gonna have uh, updates more often than that, just point to your Twitter account. If you don't have one, go make one. Yeah point yeah to absolutely,
0: it. but yeah l- uh, you can look at that and you can give uh, GitHub Pages supports uh, custom domain names and stuff like that. So if you wanted to give it a special domain name or anything, it can do that. The fact of the matter is it doesn't take a lot of hardware. To just send HTML to somebody—that's the other side of this coin—and and you kind of mentioned that, Aaron, when you said, "Well, just change your your document root." Yeah, I would argue that you probably don't want it on the same box, mm-hmm. but it—you could go get a server from ten years ago, <laughs> throw a couple extra sticks of old RAM in it, and just have that be your backup. And it probably would be effective at just running a server oh, sta-
1: and static sites. Oh yeah, Shit. yeah with apache, apache with like with static html and that's all you're serving up. You don't need much hardware for that. <laughs> I I can do you one better. Yeah. So the the final thing we'll leave you with
0: is if if you are interested in squeezing every last drop of performance out of a machine, don't use apache. Mm-hmm. Um I I know everybody loves apache. Most people love apache or like apache. They tolerate <laughs> apache. Nginx is better than apache.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: There's no way around. It's faster, it's leaner. We use that in Rails a lot. The uh there's an article over at hostingadvice.com that compares Nginx and Apache, and their rough estimate was that in testing, Nginx was about two and a half times faster than Apache at serving pages, which mm-hmm. means it can effectively serve two and a half times as many page views as a consequence.
1: I, I I've set up an Nginx server before. It's not significantly more difficult than yeah, setting as up Yeah, say, Apache. it's not harder. It is different, though.
0: It is different. One of, one of the main reasons I think it doesn't hasn't caught on real well is because WordPress is still very Apache-centric. Yeah. You can run a, WordPress on Nginx. It isn't easy, and it takes a lot of extra configuration to do it.
1: The The LAMP stack, uh, like Linux, Apache, Apache yeah. MySQL, MariaDB, and PHP, it has been around for so long. People just... Like, Apache does well enough... It's just easier to throw RAM at the problem than try to optimize with a different yeah. web server.
0: Server power has increased at a rate that
1: yeah. makes, yeah, it's like,
0: yeah, I'll, I'm okay with that. Yeah. If you want, at the end of the day, at the, the conclusion of all this discussion, like if your goal is, hey, yeah, we should have an emergency site. I want it to be as bulletproof as possible. I know we may never mm-hmm. need it, but it's one of those things, you'd rather have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Oh, yeah. And I want it to yeah. be as good as it can be I would go with nothing else beside Nginx. I would make sure we're using Mm -hmm. a static site generator. Use whatever backend you want, whether that's WordPress, Netlify. um, Hell, you could use Drupal. You could use something like we've mentioned before, Hacks, the Hacks CMS. Um, I think they would love to see you use their platform.
1: I I, I know you can technically do it, host your emergency site on WordPress or Drupal or whatever. Medium. But if you're going to go through the trouble of actually making a separate emergency site, just just do static HTML. Like there's really there's really no reason not to. Anything that's coming from WordPress, I mean, if you need to have dynamic stuff getting pulled from your CMS or whatever, then set up a cron job to pull it down or and copy it over or something, or just manually change it.
0: I, I would disagree with that on one basic ground. Okay. The person who is managing the content for your emergency site may not be tech, technical enough to handle the HTML. Oh, side. okay. And so having an authoring system, because that's a, that's the nice thing about stuff like Gatsby, is yeah. it can integrate with uh, GraphQL or the WordPress REST API. That okay, it's it's not about the experience or the serving. It's just all you're using it for is as a content store, as the authoring right. experience.
1: Oh right. You were you were saying using WordPress or Drupal to manage the content just the Yeah, the yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. Just the
0: authoring experience, not okay. the
1: presentation. I'm I'm all right with that. Um although be prepared. If your site's getting hosed, you may not be able to get into author content.
0: Right. That's that's why it should be hosted somewhere else entirely. Yeah. So yeah. if you are doing static site generation and Gatsby is, is printing that out for you, that mm-hmm. should be going to GitHub, or that should be going to right. a CDN, to to S3, or something like that, to be served out from those locations, not served from the same place you're authoring from, definitely.
1: When you're testing it, that should be part of your, your test plan, is like, what if I can't, uh, what if I'm unable to get to my my authoring platform? Or like, what if the main site is being hammered really hard, will I still be able to produce content and do updates? Yeah, to to throw back to one of the earlier comments, um,
0: the uh the site re relief dot us uh mm-hmm. framework, I mentioned that uses Airtables as its authoring platform. Huh. If, if you're not familiar with AirTables, it's basically like a uh a, a free form database that's it's kind of like an Excel sheet, basically, but as a database. It's got a very simple interface. It's meant to be very flexible. I think I don't know what the what it costs. I think they've got a free level and and a couple uh, paid tiers, but it's an entirely hosted solution, Mm -hmm. so it's designed to be there, you know, and and not go down ever for any reason, because they're not concerned with having, you know, an emergency outage like that. Um, It's a very creative approach. I, I don't like it only because... I can see companies and having their, you know, their chief information officers or their PR people or whomever. Those folks aren't technical. They're going to be used to WordPress most likely or just whatever your CMS is. And so the more you can keep your experience in line with that, the more comfortable they will be using it, especially if you don't run fire drills, which Mm -hmm. maybe is the best closing thought for this episode make sure you run some fire drills with your emergency site once in a while so that these folks know how to use them and make sure you know your DNS failover works properly and things like that. Mm -hmm. The Drunken UX Podcast is brought to you by our friends at NewCloud. NewCloud is an industry-leading interactive map provider who has been building location-based solutions for organizations for a decade. Are you trying to find a simple solution to provide your users with an interactive map of your school, city, or business? Well, NewCloud's interactive map platform gives you the power to make and edit a custom interactive map in just minutes. They have a team of professional cartographers who specialize in map illustrations of many different styles and are ready to design an artistic rendering to fit your exact needs. One map Serves all of your users' devices with responsive maps that are designed to scale and blend in seamlessly with your existing website. To request a demonstration or to view their portfolio, visit them online at nucloud.com slash drunkenUX. That's nucloud.com slash drunkenux. Everybody, thanks for sticking with us. This was episode number 61. I hope you found it useful. I hope it uh, gave you some insights into uh, thinking about an emergency website, how to keep it low bandwidth, and, and why you would want to keep it low bandwidth. I know we didn't dig real technical into how to set it up or how to wire the tools together. If you have questions about that, be sure to let us know. Um, we would be absolutely happy to to help and, and share any advice we've got from the sites we've managed.
1: Yeah, be sure to connect with us on uh, Twitter, which you should have in case you're... Disaster plan and do things. We're on twitter.com slash drunken UX and facebook.com slash drunken UX, instagram.com slash drunken UX podcast. And be sure to connect with us, even if you've connected with us before on Slack, Um, and join us on Discord. Um, The water is warm, things are nice. Um, I peed in the pool. Just avoid the general channel. Uh, it's a uh, dot com slash discord that will yes, redirect sir. you to the sign up page. If you go to slash slack, it'll just redirect you to Discord. So and, either way, either way, you're going to come over there.
0: When you're, if, if you dive into this stuff and, and you're trying to figure it out, know you know there are plenty of us out there who are willing to help and and want to help. And it's something to think about. It's also a really good exercise if you aren't familiar with static site generators and, and want an excuse to kind of play with them and test them. Man, say you know, building an emergency site for your company or your organization is a great project that most likely won't get turned away mm-hmm. because it does have a great deal of value and it's something that I think uh, most people can show off and uh, will be very pleased with. And you know, outside of that, there's not really a whole lot else that we can give you except the advice that is most important during an emergency, which is to keep your personas close, but. Your users closer. Bye-bye. <laughs> See ya.